You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. This podcast was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and stolen lands of the Musqueam people. We are committed to ensuring Indigenous women's rights to health and safety and the equal opportunity to participate in a manner that recognizes and respects Indigenous cultures and traditions. Hello, and welcome back to Women's Health Interrupted Field Trip. I'm Dr. Marina Adshade. And I'm Damara Featherstone. Our next stop on this field trip is behavioral epidemiology, where we will meet Dr. Kiffer Cart. So buckle up and enjoy the ride. Hello, everybody. Today we are joined by Dr. Kiffer Cart. Dr. Card is a social and behavioral epidemiologist with the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University. He is the scientific director of the Institute for Social Connection and the president of the Mental Health and Climate Change Alliance. Dr. Card's research currently focuses on the health impacts of emotional distress and how structural drivers contribute to distress in key populations, including gay and bisexual men, youth who use drugs, and other populations who experience discrimination, violence, and social exclusion as a result of their position and identity. So hi, Dr. Card. Hi, thanks for having me. To start off, maybe you could tell us a bit about what drew you to the field of behavioral epidemiology and your research with and on marginalized communities. Yeah, you know, I I don't know how not everyone is just fascinated and enthralled by behavior. I've always had an innate interest in, you know, what makes people behave in certain ways. And and maybe that's being around a lot of different diverse people with diverse behaviors. And fundamentally, I think it goes to the heart of who I am as a person, somebody who strives to be empathetic, to understand others. And that means looking at their behavior and understanding the full context of what happens is As you know, I'm sure many of leading public health crises that we deal with today are rooted and connected to behaviors as the most obvious point of causation. And things like HIV and STIs, where my academic career began, uh, moving into substance use and, you know, eventually looking at more complex things like mental health and those sort of behaviors. And so, yeah, trying to understand what makes people tick and do the things they do is really what drives me in, in my research, but not just the immediate effects of their behavior, but also why they behave that way and what is all the background and how does society shape that? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine something more important than that, the societal impacts in terms of individual behavior. I mean, so often when we think about behavior, we think about individual choice, but then choices made within, you know, a societal framework with all sorts of structural impacts. And I think this is one of the things that's really interesting to me about the work that you do is that a lot of the people that you're working with are part of discriminated groups, right? Youth who use drugs gay and bisexual men, just other populations that that experience stigma and discrimination. It's interesting because in your own research, the work that you're doing, especially on where we should prioritize resources for programs, how do we separate out that individual choice from societal impacts? I'm curious about that. Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating. I think most people, when they look at a behavior or an epidemic, something like COVID, which all of us are experiencing, the first thing people see and the first thing they understand is behavior and individual choice. And they frame it that because that's all they can see. Somebody not getting vaccinated, somebody using drugs, somebody having sex. 
right? These are the things that people connect most immediate to. And therefore, that has a huge potential to shape and influence public opinion and thus public policy. But that's really the simple way of looking at an issue. I think it is the job of an academic to peel back the layers and say, okay, we say behavior on this front line. But if you stop there, you've really missed out on almost everything that matters, that it's about the person's social position, their context, the society in which they live, and how all those pieces interface with one another to really shape why a person behaves the way they do, why they understand the risks and how they understand those risks associated with their behaviors, and also the compelling need to behave in certain ways to fulfill innate human needs. You can say, yeah, the sexual behavior of gay and bisexual men creates increased risk for HIV. But if you peel back the layers, you can see, well, it's actually a need for intimacy, for connection, for love, something that all of us have. But when all as you see is that behavior, you really miss out. And I think part of my work is about telling the story of marginalized populations of people for whom we only see their behaviors and trying to tell the story about what's going on with regards to their place in society, why they're doing the things they do, and to really forefront their voices through community-based research to highlight the complexity of decision-making so that we can really engender empathy in the population at large and hopefully shape policy as a result of that. So if you were speaking to women's health researchers, specifically women's health science researchers, what would you say to those people about working with individuals who we know belong to groups that are stigmatized that face discrimination? Yeah, I think in many cases, people want to be heard. And I think as part of being a researcher is you're there to hear and collect stories about people's lives. And you have to be interested and you have to be empathetic and uh, you have to be on their side. And so that's an interesting place for a researcher to go. I think historically, maybe more than a few decades ago, the thing we imagined a researcher to be was somebody up in ivory tower, disconnected, disengaged, biased, so to speak. But today, I think we're starting to recognize that actually to get to the truth of things, you have to connect with people, you have to build relationships. I think this is probably something that most researchers in practice today are realizing through their work, but definitely it's not entirely widespread. If you work in policy, for example, I think there's this innate push to feel like you're disconnected. But when you're working with people, when you're bringing their voices into the policy discussions, I think that requires that they're, you know, feel allied with you so that they can open up and share their stories. You know, when you say that we assume researchers are unbiased, I think that's such an interesting point. And you didn't say it explicitly, but I think it's there, is that maybe as a starting point, researchers need to question their own biases. Yeah, I totally agree. I think anytime you go to work in an issue, particularly when I started out, and I, I'm a gay man myself, and I started doing working in gay men's health. But even then, even with that kind of insider knowledge, I guess I might say, you know, I was still often surprised at how often I was wrong, how often I would advance a theory based on science and literature, and how often that just wouldn't be validated by the empirical results. I think that was a really critical experience to what pushed me into community-based research, because I think we can have all the theory in the world and not ever really understand anything about real people's lives. And I think that's one of the dangers that academics often face is when they try to you know, construct theory from theory and not from people's lives. And yeah, so I think you know our, our biases can be well-meaning, but they must be examined because you know there's nothing really special about us as individuals, as academics, we are not immune to all the sort of political and social and cultural bias that everyone experiences. 
Yeah, I think that's so important also because I think nowadays we're understanding that science is an objective, whereas for a long time people believed that it was the place that was objective, unbiased. But as you said, there's all these upstream biases and prejudices that are ingrained in society that affect people's lives in different ways. So maybe to jump off of that question, I could ask you, what are some of the key takeaways from your experience in community-based research that you believe women's health researchers should incorporate into their research? Yeah, I think one of the most important things I've experienced as an early career researcher is trying to be of service to communities, not trying to use communities. I think there are a lot of perverse incentives within academia to use marginalized people to advance your career, to position yourself. And I think it has often you know, led to maybe a less ideal career outcome or trying to shape an image of what I am as a researcher, because when you go into working with community from a place of trying to serve, you're really sacrificing a lot of control. As a community-based researcher, I don't always research the things I'm interested in or the things that I went in wanting to interest. You go in thinking, ah, this is the questions I want to ask. But as you build those relationships, you find yourself actually being pulled to something that the community finds more important and actually wants an answer to that. And so I think in some ways that's incredibly rewarding because you get to be pulled around, but you do have to have that flexibility. And so, you know, my career taking the winding path from HIV to substance use to mental health crises to COVID has always been in response to the things that the community cares about and the community's needs. But I think that flexibility is actually quite critical to the success that I have had in doing community-based research because it's really empowering the community and enhancing their capacity to do the work that is meaningful for them. And in exchange, that has created a lot of impact for work because then you have a whole entire community taking your work forward advocating their policymakers and governments to act. And I find that incredibly rewarding and rich. So maybe just to boil that down, it's about openness to experience with community and really making sure that you are forefronting and serving the communities that you work with and doing honor to their contributions to your career. Because undoubtedly, academics are benefited greatly by the engagement of communities. And you know we get paid very large salaries, whereas the honorariums we pay are very small. And I think we have to recognize through our work that sort of you know conflicts of interest that we deal with and make sure that we are behaving, I think, in the way that we might feel ethically or our values might compel us to behave rather than trying to deal into those incentives that academia has set up for us. You mentioned encouraging governments to provide support for communities, encouraging governments to invest funds in communities, which kind of brings me to the work that we have done, but mostly you have done, on public health interventions. And, you know, as academics and as researchers, we see these issues can be resolved by government intervention. But of course, government intervention is in part based not just on need, but also public support for different interventions. And so this latest work is so interesting because it looks at the type of interventions that Canadians are willing to fund for different groups of people. And then I think has some really important implications or results with that research for understanding why people might not want to fund programs. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think this is really critical. For a long time, we've lived, uh, we've advanced in public health, this myth of evidence-based decision-making that we say, first off, we start with the proposition that evidence should drive every decision. And that may not necessarily be true. But then we go to the the point of saying that it actually does, that the decision-makers get evidence and that they are free to act upon that. But we actually know that most decision-makers operate in realms of constrained choice. 
they don't have all the options available on the table. They can't just do anything they want. We've seen that very obviously with COVID. And so this work really sought to understand what role does public opinion play in constraining choice? And in particularly, how does that interface with equity? Because we know, okay, if decision makers aren't basing everything based on evidence, what are they factoring into those decisions? And how does that impact? And I think something that is increasingly obvious is that when you have a majoritarian or democratic approach to shaping public policy, uh, that often means that marginalized people are going to suffer from the biases that the larger population holds. And so understanding that interface between you know, public opinion bias and governance and then the key populations that need services and need supports, people like gay and bisexual men, indigenous people, people who use drugs, people with mental health crises, women, children. These are populations that need supports and services, but that there are you know, difficulties in getting those supports and services into the sector because of resource restraints, you know, neoliberal kind of ideology with regards to how much can be spent on people. And so the work that this focused on was understanding that public opinion and how that is just one piece of the puzzle, of course. But really, you know, it's what we did was a discrete choice experiment. We presented two options and a series of eight trials to people recruited online across Canada. And we asked them, given these two options, one that, you know, adds this many years to somebody's life that serves this population that addresses this health condition, you know, which of these two would you choose? And by looking at their choices that they make in these decisions, you're able to start to get an idea about how that stigma really plays in shaping, you know, attitudes about public opinion. So for example, we see people prefer to do treatment rather than prevention, which is really not ideal public policy-wise, because what we know is that you actually achieve the most for people when you're invested in prevention, not treatment. But the public wants to do treatment because, you know, when you see somebody who's sick, that's where you want to invest your money. And so these sort of things make sense about why somebody might feel that way, but then the way the evidence points you is differently. We also see, for example, that almost universally, people prefer interventions that target the general population. Uh, transgender people are among those who people least want to fund interventions targeted to that population. Same with gay and bisexual men, people use drugs, things that, you know, are thought to be rooted in a person's behavior. People don't want to fund those interventions. They want to fund chronic disease interventions, not things like infectious disease, substance use, or mental health. And so you can really see from that preliminary data that there is a lot of stigma that's seeping into how people want public health resources to be spent and invested. And I think it's our job to highlight for the population why is targeted investment sometimes useful. And we do see that when we look at interactions, for example, between a population and a health condition, people generally were more likely to support an intervention that was tailored to gay and bisexual men for HIV, right? Because they generally understood that the AIDS crisis was a disaster and people understand the need for funding that intervention. And so that highlights the importance of really convincing to the public when community has the needs, making sure that we can actually convey those needs to the general public and help them understand why it's worthwhile to do those investments. And I think that's something that public health historically has not done very well in trying to make the case for marginalized populations. Some of that's because we're afraid of stigmatizing those populations. You know, if you talk about X population has, you know, uses substances, then that could create stigma for that population. But at the same time, the population to support that intervention needs to understand the realities of the ground 
And I think to address that, we need communities leading and participating in our messaging to help the public understand. And so that's something that I think really we're striving to work and developing in this decade where we try to bring forward those voices. But it is really difficult. I think we need to do better of communicating what really is the fundamental drivers of health and well-being. And I think we give a lot of lip service to social determinants of health, talking about those things as being fundamental drivers. But when it comes down to clinical care, public health, health programming, uh, public health messaging, I don't think we do good enough to help the public understand that those are actually the critical things that we need to address. That fundamentally at issue here is we've built a society that is actually quite anti-human and that the reactions of people in society, you know, it is probably pretty rational to be depressed and to be anxious because the way that we've set up society is not really conducive to your natural biological needs as a human. And I think that drives chaos in these marginalized populations in terms of their health. You have poor health because of the stress, because of the structure of the system. That's all the stuff that's hidden behind somebody's behavior. And that's true of many of the marginalized populations that this paper looked at. Based on your findings from this paper, what do you think are the public health implications of these biases? And how do you think we should move forward now that this is understood? Yeah, well, I certainly hope our work can help politicians and decision makers second-guess their own biases and thinking about why do I feel this way or why do I think this intervention should be funded or why it shouldn't be funded. When the people making decisions for where those health dollars are actually spent are subject to that same sort of bias, that same sort of lack of understanding about the complexity of these issues, then you're actually really in big trouble because that's who's actually deciding whether or not that intervention would actually be funded. And that's where academics and building those relationships, being the link, using our privilege and authority to link people's lived experience to the ears of policy and decision makers is really critical because we can help convey that story. We can help people understand that, yes, stress is a big driver and that these people are stressed. That's why my work has really shifted away from endpoint behaviors like sex and drug use to emotional distress and to understanding just that next layer behind of what drives people's decisions and feelings and why do they do the things they do? You know, they use drugs to cope or they have sex to cope with their life experience. You know, that's where some of my work is now and was where I see it hopefully going is to then move forward in even deeper, more layers and layers behind and get at how racism, discrimination, how those sorts of things really shape an individual's behavior. But we've got to we've got to build that case brick by brick for policymakers and decision makers because this data really clearly show that at least at a population level, people do not get it. And while decision makers may be slightly more informed than the general public, I don't think that we can necessarily count on that because at the end of the day, they're getting their news and media from the same source as everyone else. And so how information is constructed is really complex. And I think the way it's being constructed now does not do service to marginalized communities by and large. Thank you, Dr. Card, for joining us on this journey and to all of our listeners who've been along for the ride. We would also like to thank the UBC Medicine Learning Network, the University of British Columbia, and everyone that has donated to the Women's Health Research Cluster for their support of this project. If you want to help transform women's health on a global scale, donate to the Women's Health Research Cluster today at www.womenshealthresearch.ubc.ca. And if you like the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcast to be notified when new episodes drop every second Wednesday of the month. And check out our show notes online to dig into the resources we talked about today. Until next time, I'm Demara. And I'm Marina. Thanks for joining us on this journey. 
This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 